Revelation, we're talking a little bit about uh, a challenging, uh, the challenges that we can learn from the book of the Revelation, especially the churches of, uh, of chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation. The book of Revelation, just a reminder, it was written humanly by a guy named John. John was the youngest of the disciples, we believe. He outlived Paul by probably 30 years or so. So all of these seven churches were... Paul seemed like John had some affiliation with them, may have been the pastor of the church at Ephesus for a while. We believe that would not be far. To our knowledge, John never got married. He was a, he was a man who gave his life for the Lord. He took care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, until he was responsible to take care of her. And never was celibate his entire life serving the Lord. He speaks of his children, but not of his own personal children, but of those he had led to the Lord. And writ, wrote to five books of her Bible, the book of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of the Revelation. He was the only disciple not uh, killed for the faith. He was tortured, boiled in oil, and exiled on the island of Patmos uh, there in Asia Minor. But of these seven churches, um, of course, Jesus came to him, and he says, I want you to write the things that were the things that are and the things that shall be hereafter. We find that in the book of Revelation in chapter number 1. So chapter 1 is about the person of Jesus Christ. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It's about, the, about Christ, and he's the focus, and he says he has a fiery sword in his mouth. In chapter 1, verse number 13, 15, uh, 17, speaks about who he is, and, and he's the beginning the end. But then chapters 2 and 3 are the story or a confrontation that Jesus has with seven of the churches. Now, the unique thing about these churches is that for the most part, they're second-generation Christians. Uh, how many of you would say your parents got saved before you, they were saved, and that's one of the reasons that you got saved, and, and they were, but they came to know Christ as adults or young people. Their parents were not Christian. Anybody like that right there? I, would be, I could raise my hand to that. My dad, uh, my grandmother did get saved later in her life, but my dad was reached as an unsaved in a wicked home, God saved him. And really one of the reasons I got saved and exposed to the gospel so young is because my dad got saved first. So I would be a second generation Christian. My children would be a third generation Christian. And so there are many of those in this room. Um, how many would say I'm a first generation Christian? I got saved, uh, maybe the first one in my family, but, I, but we came to know the Lord as a teenager or an adult. And I came to know Christ. Would you raise your hand? You're a first generation. So we have a lot of those in here and that's a wonderful blessing. So your children will be second-generation Christian, the next generation after that. Well, these churches were not young churches. They had been going on for a while. And we know that Paul started the church at Ephesus, and, and he, was, he started it there, and he trained multiple people there. It was there longer than any other place that I can see in the Scriptures that he was a missionary at three years so that was a solid church. Timothy pastored the church for a while. John the Beloved pastored the church for a while. And John seemed to have some sort of connection with each of those, but he wasn't speaking first person. He was speaking through the instrument of Jesus. Jesus is the one who is talking to these seven churches. And then, of course, chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 2, we find that Jesus tells the church to come up. And I think that is a type of things that will happen later on. 
But I do think in everything in chapter, and there's several ways to look at this, and I wouldn't argue with anyone who has a different opinion, but the seven churches, some people say, well, they're all chronological, that the first church, Ephesus, left the first love, that is the early church period dispensation. And then the next church of Smyrna, that's the people who went through the dark ages and went through some hard times and were pressured and all that. And then the church we're going to look at tonight, Pergamos, that's the next uh, section of time. And then Thyatira and then Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and then Laodicea is the church age that you and I live in. And many people believe that, and I don't, I don't, I don't think, I think there are some justifiable reasons why that may be the case. My personal opinion is I would rather look at them more practically and to think that every one of the churches that are confronted by Jesus, there's a type of that kind of a church in this world today. Every, every you go to a different church, you'll say, this church seems to have tendencies of the Philadelphia church, or this has the church of the Smyrna who is going through great persecution. Now, of the seven churches, five of them, every one of them, they get some commendation from the Lord, but all five of them get a harsh rebuke from the Lord. He says, look, I've got something against you. We gotta talk, because I'm glad this, this, and this, and that's great, but let me talk to you about this. I've got something against you. Now, uh, Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia do not. They are the lowly church and the loyal church that do not have as much as a re of a rebuke. But the other five do. Tonight we're talking about the church at Pergamos. Let's look at it, if we can, please. Chapter number two, and let's look, if we can see the challenge from this passage of Scripture here. Verse 12. And to the angel, that's the pastor of the church of Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching you. And you'll see that Jesus defines himself every time he reaches the church with a certain uh, illustration or an analogy. And here he says, I'm coming to you with a sharp sword in my mouth. Now, well, what do you think that sharp sword is? It's the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12, for the word of God is quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than the two-edged Lord. It's sharp, uh, piercing to the divine soul of, of spirit and the joints of the morrows, the discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Um, he tells us in chapter 1 that he, ha he has the sword in his mouth. And, of course, Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word's with God, and the Word was God. And later on, verse 14 of John chapter 1, he said, The Word was made flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, speaking of Jesus. So he says, when I'm approaching this, this, approaching this church, I am approaching it with the, with the sword of the Lord and, and the sword in my mouth. And, you know, the word of God has several purposes. We know that it's to tell us what is right, what's not right, how to get right, how to stay right. The word of God is given to us so we can be wise into salvation. Paul told Timothy that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise into salvation. I sat today with my wife Linda in the living room of one of our friends and I went through the gospel. I led the man to Christ last year on July the 12th and, and I got a chance to talk to, our, to his sweet wife. And as soon as he got saved, July 12th last year, he told me, John, stand up. And I stood up and he said, give me a hug. And so I hugged him and he said, number two, my wife has got to hear this. And uh, I've had several, several opportunities trying to do it. Today I got to go through the whole gospel with her. And she's not ready to receive the Lord yet. And by the way, when you witness to people, you can't win them. You have to just warn them. And you have to just tell them and let the God do his work. And I'm, I'm excited about it. I think she's going to get saved, but it's not this day. And a matter of fact, when he got saved, I had went through the gospel all the way through before that. And he said, you know, that's a lot to handle. 
I never heard something like that. I need some time. And then I, another time, I got a chance to go over again. And he said, okay. And he was ready to receive the Lord. And by the way, that's just the, yeah, you know, sometimes every piece of fruit is not ready uh, to be picked at the same time. You know, I just, some folks need a little more time, but any more of that's not, it's kind of frustrating for me because I want everybody to get saved right away, don't you? I want everybody witness to to get saved right away, and that sometimes happens, sometimes it doesn't happen. But some, some plant, some water, who gives the increase? God is the one who gives the increase in that situation. But uh, the Word of God, it helps us know how to get saved. It helps us know how, how to, um, to be profitable and successful in this life. It helps us to be seasoned, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, and then it helps us know how to serve the Lord. And there's lots of reasons for the Lord, but the Word of God definitely is inspired by God. It's for our instruction, and it's for our correction. It, 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 God knows, and He's going to destroy this world by his, he formed the world by his voice, and he's going to destroy much of the world by his word. It's very powerful. I think it's the most powerful thing on the planet, is the word of God. And we, it's why I think Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. And that power is the word dunamis, dynamite. It blows up in the heart of people. Never be ashamed of the word of God. And boy, if anyone ever give you a chance to share the Bible, if they even say, I'm a Jewish, I'm an atheist, whatever, I was talking to my Jewish friend last week, his name is Michael, and, and I, I said, you know, Michael, I'd like to share this with you. He goes, you know, really, I don't, I'm not concerned about eternity. I don't care. Whatever happens, happens. No, he, he didn't really believe that, but that's what he wanted to do to keep me not talk to him anymore. But the truth of the matter is, I, I said, Michael, that's something you need to really think twice about. And I gave him a track, and he said, all right, John, I'll appreciate that. When I go hiking up in Halifax, I'll, I'll maybe put this in my backpack, and we'll talk about it, we'll think about it. And I think God's going to use that to, take to, to challenge him. But the word of God's powerful. And Jesus said, I'm coming to you in this church with the, my word. Now look at the next verse, would you please, in verse number 13. Here's what Jesus says to him. Number one, I know thy what? You know, I know. By the way, does God know the works of First Baptist Church of Hammond? Does he know your work? Is anything a, a secret to him? No, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So none of us are going to need any. We won't need a prosecuting attorney, attorney or we won't need any kind of uh, evidence uh, at the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ when we evaluate for our works. God knows them. He says, I know. I know what you do. And, I, and matter of fact, he's going to commend them. But he also knows this. I love what he says in the next verse. I know where thou what? I know where you are. I know where you live. Now, they lived in Pergamos. Pergamos was the political center of that area and also the false religious area of that thing. And he, they, he said, you live in Satan's backyard. That's where you live. Satan has a lot of demonic control in your area. He says, I know where you are. By the way, God knows where you are. If you're a single uh, if you're a single, lonely adult, God knows you. If you are suffering rejection or financial reversal or you find yourself uh, working through some things of your path, God knows where you're at. I was witnessing to a man this last week on, on, uh, on Sunday. He said, Pastor, he goes, I, I, I think you're the second person in my life that I have opened up about my past with. And, I'm, and as I was telling him about the gospel, he said, I need to tell you some stuff. He said, I don't think I've told, I told one other person in my life this situation. He went through it. And he says, I have called the, uh, the suicide hotline with regularity for the last two years. Probably no less than five times a week. And I've got seven friends who killed themselves. 
And uh, so I'm not ready to receive the Lord right now. He said, but uh, I promise you I'll be in your church service on Sunday. And uh, I'm going to figure out some things. There's some things I can't figure out about myself. But the truth of the matter is, does God know where that man is? Yeah. Does he know what's going on in his mind? Yeah. Does he know what he feels in moments of weakness and sadness and self-destruction? Sure he does. And he knows where you are. There is not a situation you're going through that God doesn't know where you are. Some of us have great fears of our health and of when's enough enough? Am I going to have enough for this? Or what's going to happen if this happens? Or what happens if this election doesn't go good? Or what happens if this? There's so many things. And the devil is a sinister minister of doubt, of fear, and lies. And he especially loves fear. And when you have fear, you can know this, that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a power to do whatever he wants us to do, to think like he wants us to think, and to love the way he wants us to love. That's, that's the power of God. Fear will rob you of those three things real quickly. Nonetheless, he says, I know where you are. I know where you live. I know your works. Look in verse number 13 again. And thou holdest fast my name. He's going to use some personal pronouns, possessive pronouns. He holds fast what? My name. And hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas my, was my faithful martyr or witness for the Lord, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. So wherever this place is of Pergamos, and I did not do probably ample study to know everything about it, and there's a lot of conflicting ideas about this, but I will tell you this, I think it was Satan's backyard. I think if you were to start to study cities in our country, there are a few cities that when you go in the city limits, if you're sensitive to the Spirit of God, I think you can feel the oppression that comes. You can feel there's something not right here. And I think, I think if you were to go into Pergamos, that's how you'd feel. You'd say, man, this is Satan's backyard. This, there's some bad dudes in this city. There's some bad stuff going on. And the Bible says to this church at Pergamos, look, you guys, in a bad way, in Satan's backyard, you have been faithful to my name. You have been faithful to my faith. You even have allowed one of your members has suffered death for my cause, Antipas. The word means against all. I don't know if it's something he gave him, in it, but against all odds, he still stood firmly for the Lord. I don't know if it's a figment or somebody in particular or a name that God gave him. But nonetheless, he said, this is, a, this is an admirable church. Look at the next verse, would you please? We're looking at verse number 14. Would you read out loud with me? But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak and the cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. He says, look, I, you, you've kept my name. You have kept my faith. You have even have one of your members die for the cause of Christ in the Satan's stronghold. Way to go. But I got something against you. He said, you are not willing to keep the world out of your church. You are trying to blend worldliness into, into, into holiness. And that's not working. He uses the story of Balaam. Now, we're not going to take time, and I don't have the time tonight. I'm not doing a good job on my time. But in the book of Numbers, chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, and also uh, later on in the book of Numbers, and I've forgotten the reference, I think chapter 31, 15, and 16, you'll have the story of God's people coming uh, th through the area. And Balak 
was the, was the king, and he saw all these Israelites coming. And so he got a hold of one of their prophets named Balaam. And Balaam was a prophet of God. He told Balaam, he said, Balaam, I'm going to give you a lot of money. I'll pay you top dollar. Here's what I want you to do. Curse the people of God. You might remember, he said, if you curse them. And so Balaam set out to do it. He got an eye for gold, and he felt like the price was right. And remember, who stopped Balaam from cursing? A donkey. Hee-haw, hee-haw. He, a donkey started talking to him, and he's beating the snout of this donkey, trying to get through. There's an angel of the Lord stopped there. And he not only couldn't, he couldn't curse them, he had to bless them. But then he advised Balak to do this. He said, look, I can't curse the people of God, but here's what you can do. If you will let uh, their girls hang around your boys, and uh, in, in a matter of time, everything you want to curse the people will happen by infiltration. You just start blending, blending some of your girls into those guys, and they'll, their lust and their, and their attention will be taken away, and they will go into a, 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 a place of cursedness. They'll, they'll, you, you, what you want is what you'll get. It'll take a little longer, but go ahead. And that's what he did. And the Lord brings back this particular story in this passage of Scripture. He says to the church, you guys have been good to my name. You've been kept to the faith. You've got one, someone's even died a martyr's death for my cause. He said, but I got something against you. And that is, you have allowed compromise to come into my church. And I don't like it. He also goes on to talk about the Nicolaitans. There's a lot of arguments about that. The work Nicolaitans means to conquer the people. And uh, some believe that maybe the Nicolaitans were people who, who really, they conquered the laity the, the clergy conquered the laity and controls and, and micromanages the people. Maybe that's the case. But I think it's along the same line personally that I think it's infiltration into the wilderness. You know, when a church, a church is supposed to be holy, a holy, clean, unblemished bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why you need to not get stuff in your head from your television, your phone, you shouldn't be watching the latest movies with all the, the filth and the pornography, soft porn and the filthy language and all the, the drinking and the alcohol and the perversion that takes place. You know why? Because you're in the church. This church is not a building. It's not a domination. It's you. It's me. Our church can only be as strong as our weakest member, our most worldly member. But he's talking to the pastor of the church, and he says, look, pastor, um, I've got something against you. And here's what i got against you. You have allowed worldliness to come inside to the body of believers. You have, you have, you, you know, you stood against a lot of things, but then you have let worldliness come in. You know, I think we have seen that. Those of you who are Christians, if you've been a Christian very long, you can look around and you can see loosey-goosey churches. And, and here's what they are. They're people that love God that even leave those churches but they're not worthy of emulation. There's two things happen when a church gets worldly. And this is a fight for this pastor. It's a fight for every pastor. It's a fight for you. Because our world, we're naturally attracted to this world. We want to look like the world. We want to blend in. We don't want to stand out. But God says, come out from among them and be ye. He wants a very separated church. We're not better than anyone else. 
But he wants to be a happy, he wants a clean and an unblemished bride. He wants to present us one day, as the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, here's what happens when the church gets worldly. Here's what happens with the church of Pergamos. Number one, their effectiveness in a wicked world is neutralized. They're not going to be, people don't need another cheap imitation of the world. Their, their, their effectiveness to really stand out in a wicked world is going to be neutralized. And that's not good. One of the things we want in, in a church, and God wants in his church, he wants it to make a difference. Let your light soul. He said, I want you to be a light. I want you to be a light. Don't put your light under the, under the bushel or the, the, uh, of, of work. Don't put it under the bed of luxury. No, let your light come up and, and shine in your community. And you've got to be different to make a difference. You need to be holy. The second thing in a worldly church is tragic is that you destroy the next generation. You know, worldly churches, go watch a church that's been like our church maybe. We're not perfect but has standards of holiness and righteousness and trying to keep the world out and make sure there's a distinction. This church service is not intended to impress the unsaved world. This church service is for Christians. We got these, all these folks are trying to make a church that attracts the unsaved world. Let's get the band up. Let's get, let's get this. Let's just jam. I was watching a youth group the other day from, a, from some, some churches that used to be like us. Now they're they're just jumping around. Everybody's jumping around. The guy's on the guitar, and he's just playing it with just, like, no, um, no reverence for God. And nobody else is reverencing God. It's just, it's all about the flesh. It's all about worldliness. It's exactly what you look at if you look at a worldly concert. And yet, we're sending up strange fire to God. But here's what I, here's what I find, is that in the next generation, you blend worldliness into a church family See how many kids in, in, in the next 10 years go off to serve the Lord in a mission field. See how many they go off to Bible college and train for the ministry. See what happens after that. It won't happen. It won't happen. And the Bible's very clear here. The church of Pergamos, he says, look, you, you go into this doctrine of Balaam and you'll infiltrate them and it'll lead to immorality and idolatry, the worship of self, if nothing else. Look at the next verse, if we can, please. The Bible says in verse number 15, and uh, so thou hast also them. And you, of course, he says, my, my faith, my, my name, my faithful martyr. And then he says, but thou uh, hast there them. He Now he turns to them. Who taught Balak? Who? Verse, verse 15, so that thou also them that hast held or hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. So really, it's a loosey-goosey church. They love God, but they did not have the interest or the strength to stand against compromise. That is, and it takes, it, any old dead fish can, fl can float downstream. It takes some strong, faithful, loving people to stay right with God in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And here's what, here's what this is satanic, but this often happens. People who go off into, into worldly living, and by the way, they'll say to me, they'll say like, Oh, man, I remember one time sitting in the back, of, uh, sitting in the front seat of a car, and another guy was in the back, and I was sitting with another pastor who had, who had drank the Kool-Aid and gone off into, into um, worldliness. They stopped the soul-winning program, want to have Taibo boxing, you know, and just like have art festivals instead of bus ministries, and just, just trying to love the community and, and let them know we, we love them. And 
And I'm not against all of that stuff, but I just, I just, I remember just uh, saying I was challenging some of the things. And he said, you know what, John, you know what your problem is? You need some grace, dude. He said, you know what? I have such a wonderful walk with God. I can do anything I want and just love God and just go on. I don't have to count, check any boxes. I don't have to say no rules. Just write for me, man. You have to live way up here. I just get to love God and have lots of liberty and lots of grace. You know, I remember hearing that, and I, I was thinking that maybe the pastor might say, hey, man, calm down a little bit. No, this guy was going after it. And I remember right where I was in the whole situation. But, you know, I went home that night, and I read this, that the grace of God, for by grace are you saved through faith. You know, the grace of God doesn't just save you. But Titus chapter 2 says it sets up a classroom in our heart. And it teaches us to deny ungodliness and live soberly and righteously in this present world. The grace of God doesn't go away once you get saved. No, it shows up as your teacher to teach you how to live holy and elevate your lifestyle. Not because we're better than anybody else, but because God owns us and he wants a pure, holy people. He goes, that's why I hate the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. That's why I hate the doctrine of Balaam, this infiltration. And boy, it's, it's sneaky. Comes in in my life, comes in your life. Well, look what the admonition is. Let's look at that. We're, we're, we need to be done. Verse number 16. Would you read the first word for me, everyone, nice and loud? You like that word? You know what I like the word repent means? It means I still have time to make a choice. If God tells you to repent, it means you still have time to make a choice to, to run back to him. Repent means a change. It's a change of, 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 of thought, a change of direction. Everybody who gets saved has to repent. That precious lady I gave the gospel today, she has to repent. She has to say, you know what? What I have believed my whole life is not true. I thought I had this and this and this, and this is why I'm going to heaven. Now you're telling me this, and the Bible says this. You know, if she gets saved, she'll have to repent. She has to change her thinking about that and her direction from what she believed to what Jesus said and who Jesus is. Anybody who's against God, the Bible tells us in meekness. Instructing those that oppose himself. If God prevents you, would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That they can recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who has taken them captive at his will. He tells them repent. Look at verse number 16 again. If I go this slow, we'll not be out of here until midnight. So we've got to quit going here. Repent or else, what will Jesus do? I will come unto thee, how? When? Quickly. And I will fight against them with what? So he's already introduced himself as a sharp sword with two edges. He said, I'll come and deal with that. And uh, I'll deal with those, those things. Now look at verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give them a white stone, and a stone of a new name, uh, a name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And then he goes into the address of the lawless church of Thyatira. We'll talk about that, who suffered Jezebel to be the teacher in that church. You know, he said here, and I don't know all the analogies. I'll just tell you honestly, I don't know if I get under everything. But he says there's three things. He said, if you'll catch on and stay pure and don't allow compromise and stand strong in a very strong emphasis to compromise, there's three things that are going to happen. Number one, manna, hidden manna. Number two, a white stone. Number three, a name on that white stone. Now, most of that stuff, and I can just tell you what I've read and studied. 
But manna, of course, is a type. Who is the bread of life? Jesus. You'll have a realization of Jesus. And hidden manna is kind of interesting. Maybe you'll have more insight to the scriptures. You'll have more, you'll have more understanding, spiritual insight to things. I think that may be a thing. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I think he's that manna. And I think that I think you'll have more insight. And I think you'll have a more realization of him and his provision for you. You know what manna was done, given for? To provide for God's people. I think that's a result of someone who stays faithful. You know, people oftentimes try to please the world so they can sustain themselves. We got nothing to prove. We have one person to please. When you try to go, well, if we don't reach more people and find out what they want and soften our standards, we won't have anybody in this church. Well, who's supposed to sustain the church anyways? Whose church is it? I'll give you hidden men. I'll give you provision, and the provision will be Jesus. Number two, a white stone. Oftentimes, and I understand this at the Olympics of, like, of that day, an athletic competition, they would give the leader, uh, whoever won, they would give him a, 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 a what's it called? The, the green thing that goes around his head. But, you know, how long did that last for? Not very long, would it? If you, put, if you wrapped around some weeds around your head, how long would they last for, you know? It's not meant to last for long, but, you know, oftentimes they would do is they would give them a stone. And they would put their name in that stone. And when they would go places, that stone would give them privileges and entrance into gates and into opportunities if they would have that. It was a recognition of their accomplishment. The weeds, they went away after a while. But the stone was something that was eternal. It was long-lasting. Long it wasn't going to be, and a stone name edged in there that only they know what it is. I think if there's incentive from the Lord Jesus Christ to live a holy and a pure life. Let's pray together, can we? Thank you for being here this evening. If there's